All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight will be in Acts 18, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Acts 18. And we'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to spend time in your word. As we open our Bibles, we're so thankful that we can own them, that we can have them, we can read them anytime we want. We're so blessed. Now, Lord, help us to not take that for granted, but to hear what you have to say to us by your spirit, to receive it, to let it get deep down into our hearts, to change us from the inside out, and help us to truly see you in this ministry that you see in the book of Acts, this work of your Holy Spirit through all these people, and how that continues through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul is uh, reeling from his moment at Mars Hill. Last week, he made this plea to the people of, um, at Mars Hill and, and uh, trying to liken it to the unknown God that they would worship. They had many, many gods there. And it was, it was a, a hard thing for him when he gets to, um, when he gets to that place, he talks about the, the resurrection from the dead and they tune him out and he's reeling on that rejection. They all walk away. They all leave him. And, and um, he's not, He's used to getting at least beat up or someone comes to know the Lord, you know, not this, this lukewarm response. It's a new one for him. And, you know, as we've been reading through this, no one's responded that way yet. This is, that's the first time. And I don't know if he knows what to think of that. And so as he leaves, he heads over to Corinth. And this is a great time after tonight's study to go ahead and read first and second Corinthians and kind of get a handle on it. We'll do a lot of cross-references tonight, of course, from that book, but a lot happens here. He spends the most time of his entire ministry at one spot, anyway, at Corinth, and um, does a tremendous ministry there, and it was a break for him. It was a blessing. You're going to see God step in and bring him a comforter. He's going to bring him supporters, friends. He's going to bring provision to him here at this place. This is a real safe haven for Paul. And he needs it. I think we could all agree, you know, not take a break because Paul never takes a break. The guy doesn't ever stop talking about Jesus, but at least you're not going to get beat up for a while. We're going to give you a year and a half to recover from your bruises and broken bones and dislocations and whatever else he may have. And God says, I'm going to give you a break here. It's just a beautiful time for him. And um, so that's where we pick up our story. He moves into this city. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So he does his usual modus operandi. That's what he does. He comes into town, and he really takes it to heart when Jesus said it's to the Jew first and then, then to the Gentile. He doesn't neglect the Gentiles, but he definitely wants to make sure he does it in order. He does it properly, almost to, not to a fault, but I don't think you could persuade him to not go to the synagogue first or to the temple first. He always, always went to the Jews first. And I believe that's because he took it to heart. Jesus said, it's for you first, and if you reject it, then it's to the Gentiles. And he understands there's a purpose for those things. 
And we'll read about that tonight, about a jealousy that God wants to provoke in the nation of Israel. There's a purpose for going to them first, because if they reject, he's not done with them. He definitely wants them to know their Savior, but if they reject their Savior, he doesn't want that to be it. Go to the Gentiles, and that'll make them crazy, you know? And so Paul, I don't know if he understood it or not, but he definitely followed it, followed the pattern that Jesus gave for him, so that whatever the reason, whatever God's reason was for going to the Jew and the Gentile first, maybe not knowing about the jealousy thing, he knew he was being obedient to God and God can work that out. And I take that to heart, and I hope we do. Sometimes God asks us to do things, we don't know exactly why we're supposed to do them, but that's okay. That was a hard lesson for me that I don't think I ever learned in the military was just to listen to an order and go do it without wondering why I'm doing it. I didn't like that at all. I just, I didn't respect the guys above me enough to just trust that whatever they were telling me to do was the right thing to do. And for whatever purpose, it was going to serve a greater good somewhere, somehow. I didn't buy it out because sometimes it didn't. Sometimes you'd catch them telling you to do stuff because they were amusing themselves or they were bored. They said, go do this, JD. I didn't use my name that way. They used a different name usually, but can't use those things in church. And after a while, you start thinking, you know, no, I'm not going to do it. You have to. I'm telling you to do it. Uh, You know, so you get this attitude. You don't trust that person above you. But this is God. This is different than listening to a man. This is God. And when Jesus says, I want you to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, you do it. And you trust that whatever the reason is, there is a reason. And you don't have to know it. But you can do it full bore without asking why. You can just say, yes, sir. You know. So Paul does that. Now, it says here that as he went in and began to minister to the Jews, he at first uh, met these two people. Aquila and Priscilla, wonderful, wonderful couple. They're from Rome, not originally. They're from Pontius originally, but they've gone up to Italy. They've had a tent-making job, you know, making some money. That's what they did for a living. They knew the Lord. They were believers. But for some strange reason, Claudius decided to kick everybody out of Rome, all the Jews anyway, and they had to head south or over, (laughs) east a little bit and south. There are, there are divine appointments out there. Now, at the time when you've got a, a profitable business and you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're making money and you're in a foreign land, you're in Italy and what a great place and you're doing all, and you get this letter that states or something, you know, pounded to some pole in the middle of town square saying all Jews must now vacate. You could, you could almost sense their heart and feel their heart drop, you know. Are you kidding me? The oppression, the, the wrong, I'm being wronged. I, this isn't fair. And, uh, you know, what happens if I don't? And, and boy, we better. And to only think about the moment of the, not only inconvenience, but the, it's a tragedy. It is. It's, it's a traumatic experience for these two. And I don't know whether they just chalked it up to being led of the Lord or not. I, I, you know, you'd like to think that. I guess God's got better plans for us. There must be somebody down there that needs us somewhere. So we're just going to trust that God's using these pressure tactics from the world to move us in the direction he wants us to go. But I don't know. Sometimes I don't think that way. Maybe they didn't think that way either. 
But we need to start thinking that way because that's exactly what takes place. God has got this crazy Sanhedrin Jew over here named Paul, who was Saul, who he's blinded and given sight back and is a born-again believer, and is going crazy telling everybody about Jesus and getting beat up wherever he goes. He's going to need a break. He's going to need somebody in his life that's not going to beat him up. Someone's going to support him. Someone that he can hang out with and trust, you know. That's coming. I don't know how far ahead God planned, but he plans really far ahead. So I've got these two couple, this couple up here in Italy. They are crazy tent makers. They're crazy good at what they do, but they love me with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And boy, they have good, solid doctrine. And we'll learn that we know that later on as they speak to Apollos. But boy, they really take my word to heart and they really love me with all their heart. That'd be a great matchup because when you're a part of the Sanhedrin or any kind of religious guy in the Jewish system, you were to have a trade. You were to learn how to make money. Can't just rely on taking money from people. You got to have your own trade. And Paul's trade was tent making. And so I've got these people up in Italy here that are excellent tent makers, and they've got a really great business going, but I got Paul coming who's not going to need help. How am I going to get these two guys, these, this little threesome together? Well, force them out through persecution. That'll make them stronger because every time the wind blows of persecution, it only flans the flame of their walk with the Lord. He brings them down, and here comes Paul reeling after a beatdown at Mars Hill in Athens, and they come together at this one place in time. Only God can do those things. And he does those things for us as well. Who would have thunk it, you know? A little town of Corinth and not Athens. Athens should have been the big ministry. Athens should have been the place where the church exploded. Athens was like, I mean, that's the hub right there. That's the main place. Nope. Not even a beatdown. Very few people get saved, more of a lukewarm, eh, whatever. And then he goes to Corinth. And so Paul finds these two people, or God brings these three together, and they begin to make tents across from one another, and they begin to. And so let me break that you know, down a little bit further, some more things we gather from this. Sometimes you'll hear, and this is Christianese, you know, there's a language that we have in the church that we, you know, the world doesn't know. And, uh, and, and one of those things is, well, that's my tent-making job. As a pastor, you'll go to a pastor's conference and say, are you full-time? All the little guys come together. Are you full-time? I'm not full-time. Are you full-time? You know, because we can't ask each other how big our churches are. So you look at, are you full-time? And you say, no, I'm, my tent-making job is real estate, or my tent-making job is, that's what we, those are the terms we use, because Paul had a tent-making job. He did this. And he did this in Corinth so that he could never be charged with making money from the gospel, because there was that group going around too, evangelists that would swing into town for a three-night tent meeting and take their take. And hopefully somebody got saved, but they'd leave the disciples on their own and fend for themselves, and they'd take off, and that was it. And that was their circuit. They would make money that way. Fleecing the flock, we call it. They would come along to the sheep and take their wool and leave them naked kind of thing. That's what fleecing the flock means, another Christianese term. So Paul's tent-making job was tent-making, and that's where we get that term from. He was good at it too. Imagine the conversations they would have sitting across from each other, so intense together and making tents. Good fellowship, good friendship. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 14, one of the letters he wrote back to this church that Paul's about to start here, he says, you know, it's okay that I, and I'm going to paraphrase so what we read through it, you don't, I don't lose you here. It's okay to work and to not take money from you, but I want you to know it's also okay to make money from the gospel. It's okay that you do take a salary and these guys can take a salary. Paul says, I didn't do that, but that doesn't mean that everybody's not supposed to do that. And so he makes that clear in 1 Corinthians, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. You ought to be able to eat while he's walking around strapped to this big apparatus, you know. You shall not muzzle the ox. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Is that what the law is about, he's saying? No. Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? I'm talking about those evangelists that would swing through Corinth. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offering of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So he makes it clear that this isn't necessarily the way it has to be. Paul doesn't set himself up as the example for all preachers everywhere. He says, no, I did this on purpose because I didn't want... I didn't want that over my head. I didn't think you'd hear the gospel if I was taking money from you. So I didn't. I made tents with Priscilla and Aquila over here, and I shared the gospel with you so that you knew that I wasn't trying to get something from you, you know? And so he writes this letter to them. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, there's something about this Priscilla and Aquila that he needed, something about this. And he'll say this several times in several of his epistles. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affliction and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Priscilla and Aquila were a different kind of couple. They weren't Timothys. What do you want us to do, boss? Which way should we go, boss? Stay here, Timothy. Catch up with me, Timothy. Say, you know, not that he was a lackey or an underling, but he, he definitely wasn't a peer. He was someone that Paul was bringing up in the Lord, teaching to be a pastor. Priscilla and Aquila are different. They're peers. They're someone you can sit across making tents and talk about deep spiritual things. And they're not, they're not trying to teach you anything. You're not trying to teach them anything. It's just fellowship, beautiful fellowship like it's described here. We're like-minded. It's wonderful to be around like-minded people. It's wonderful to have that comfort of love coming from people, that fellowship of the Spirit. I think you need all three of those kind of people in your life. I think you need Timothys in your life or Timothyettes in your life. Men and women that are younger than you in the Lord and need to be brought up. I think that's important for you as a teacher to become more mature, to be able to share what you've learned with others. But also you need to have Pauls in your life or Paulinas. Men or women who are older in the Lord that can bring you up and someone you can look to. But you also need that like-minded. 
You need those peers to have this kind of fellowship where no one's looking at like they're above anybody else or below anybody else. And Paul needs that right now. And God knows that. I'm going to let you work with these two, a wonderful couple of his, his friends, beautiful people. He says in Romans about them, as he's writing to the Romans and Priscilla and Aquila are there in verses three and four, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. There's some amazing people. Tell them, thank you. They risked their necks for me. You know, those are the kind of people. Paul didn't have a whole lot of people like that in his life. God knew that he needed that. And he brought them. And they were willing. They didn't get bitter. They didn't walk away from the Lord. They didn't doubt God's sovereignty as they were getting kicked out of Italy. They just see this Paul here and like, wow, this is great. You know, this divine appointment, we call it. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. So Paul goes to the place where he says he's going to go to. He goes to the synagogue right, right there, ministers to them, and they say, no way. And so he, instead of just shaking the dust off of his feet, he shakes his I mean, he makes quite a scene. He's not happy. He's not happy for a reason. It's not your typical... Well, I guess I just planted the seeds today. Maybe someone else will come along and water. He's, he's not, he doesn't have that attitude about this. He's upset with them for hearing what he had to say, and he was a teacher of teachers. As he takes them through the Old Testament, from the law and the prophets, everything about the scriptures that they have in their hands that they studied every Saturday, and said, can't you see clearly that Jesus is the Christ? It was so obvious to Paul that when they rejected it, he's like, I mean, that is just blindness to where he shakes his coat out. It's frustrating to him. And so he doesn't go across town. He goes right next door. Fine. I'm going to the Gentiles now. Because that's the way Jesus said we're supposed to do this. First to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. And when that took place, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord and all of his household. Crispus, the ruler. So now these guys don't have a pastor next door. Christmas says, well, I'm going with Paul next door, you know, to Justice's house. And everybody's like, what? There's some scriptures for you. In Romans chapter 10, verses 16 through 21, it says this. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And Paul's going to go through a series of prophecies and things in the Old Testament that foretold the fact that the Jews would not receive the gospel, wouldn't receive Jesus. So he goes through these. Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. It says, their sound has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth, ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know first Moses saying, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. 
I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. That'd be the Gentiles. That'd be us. It's always been the plan. If they reject you, that's okay. We're going to go to the Gentiles and you're going to say that this Jesus is your Messiah. That's our Messiah. Well, then receive him. No, we don't want him, but you can't have him either. I mean, there's just, just bizarre thinking in their head that makes them jealous. You're talking about Jesus, our Messiah, and it moves them to anger. It moves them to jealousy. It provokes them. He's trying to poke them. But Isaiah is very bold, and he says this, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Disappointed. Paul's disappointed. But he does what he needs to do. And you know what? It worked because Crispus comes to know the Lord. It's a pretty big deal when you can get the pastor the other place to come over to your place. You know, that's a good thing. In Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 15, Again, about provoking to jealousy. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, the Jewish people not believing on Jesus, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy, it's twice he said that now, those who are of my flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, he's writing that for a different purpose. He's making sure the Romans don't get prideful, that we're better than the Jews, and God has forsaken the Jews, and we're the new Jews on the block kind of thing. We're the new people group on the block. No, no, no. I'm still trying to get them. I'm just using you to make them jealous. Glad you're saved and all, you know. But I sure would like to see some of my countrymen come to know their Savior, Jesus Christ. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 1.14. When he's talking about the baptizing of uh, this Crispus guy, when he writes to the Corinthian church, he actually mentions this guy by name. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Those are the only ones he can remember that he baptized. Lots of people get saved in Corinth, and the whole point of Paul saying that is the the baptism is not a part of the gospel, never has been, never will be. It's something that happens after you receive the gospel. He separates the two. He says, I don't know if I baptized anybody. I think I baptized Crispus and Gaius, but anybody else, I don't remember. Well, if it was part of the gospel, you think it'd be pretty important to remember, you know, who you baptized. It wasn't. And he makes it very clear there in, Corinth, in the letter to the Corinthians that, no, that's different. It's separate. I came to preach the gospel, not to baptize. So that's where they're at. Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia. Paul was compelled by the Spirit. He testifies to the Jews. They reject him. He goes next door to Justice's house. Crispus gets saved. They've got to find a new pastor over at the synagogue. And now they're in trouble. <laughs> now, right after that takes place, and he has a, quite a victory getting Crispus to come over to the Lord, verse 9 says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in a mighty vision or at night by a, by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. He's like, I'll take that. I'll take that break. 
When God documents in his word what he said, we can deduce what Paul was feeling. Jesus doesn't step in and say, do not be afraid to someone who isn't already afraid. Paul was afraid. Paul just got the leader of the Jews to come over to his place next door to the synagogue and has walked away and shook him the clothes off. And it's hard not to flinch, you know? Anybody that's ever been abused by an adult as a kid or an animal, we noticed that with our horses. We got two more horses. I don't know why. No, they're wonderful. But they eat a lot of hay. (laughs) But every time I pull my hands out of my pockets when they first came, just to put my hands out for them to smell, as soon as my hands came out, they'd flinch. Tells you. Dogs will do that. Every animal will do that. You can tell. It's even worse when you see kids do it in Sunday school or wherever. That being said, you only flinch when you've been hurt a lot, when you know what's coming, when you anticipate, when you try to brace for it. Paul's bracing. Paul just got Christmas to come over. He knows what's next. He knows what's next. He knows that the people that didn't come over are going to be so furious that they're going to look for him. They're either going to put me in jail. They're either going to beat me up. They're going to lie about me. I'm going to get oh, the beatdowns coming. Imagine what that feel like, what that would feel like. A lot of us said, shut us up. Just the idea, the thought of the fact that might happen if I open my mouth because it's happened to me before would teach me to keep my mouth shut from now on because I'm not doing that again. I can't. I do not want to go through that. I don't want to call Luke, Dr. Luke, who wrote Book of Acts. I don't need him to cut. I don't want him to patch me up anymore. I'm kind of done with that. Mold, you know? He's bracing. He's flinching. And Jesus knows that about him and doesn't fault him for it. He doesn't say, Paul, you know, man up. He comes alongside of him in a vision. Do not be afraid. But speak. Don't close your mouth, Paul. Of all the people in this world that shouldn't be closing their mouth, it's you. I need you to talk. I need you to open your mouth and share. Please speak. Don't keep silent, which was what Paul was going to do. Or you don't say that to somebody who isn't about to do that. And I love that the Bible is so transparent about this guy's heart. Paul! You can kind of make him into a legend in our minds. We can kind of make him into this more than a man kind of person. Well, that's the Apostle Paul. Yeah, he was scared to death and wanted to shut up and wanted to go hide in a hole. As did a lot of the prophets. A lot of these men of God filled with the Holy Spirit after they've done a great work for God are like, oh, and they just want to go hide someplace in a cave or wherever. Just don't call on me. I want you to speak. Don't keep silent. And here's why. Because I'm with you. There's a lot to that. Three things. Not only am I present with you, but I have sympathy for you. And we're in cooperation together. We're working together. My Holy Spirit is moving through you. And it's time for us to both be a part of this ministry. That's important. Because for God to say, I'm going to be right alongside you when you get that beat down. Thanks. I mean, I know you went to the cross, but I kind of feel like I've been to the cross 12 or 15 times in my life already now. I complete in my body the markings of Jesus Christ, he says to the Corinthian church. I I fulfilled. 
Jesus got crucified, but I'm like getting beat down every time I go into a city. I'm fulfilling these things. It's still happening. So for you to say that you're beside me while I'm getting beat down, well, that's okay. But the fact that it's not just that, it's I have sympathy for you. And we need to know that. It's a beautiful verse in Hebrews about that. We have a high priest that can sympathize with our weakness. Sympathize. He doesn't look down on us. He doesn't say that you're dust and you're dirt and you should know better and you ought to toughen up and man up and all this or woman up or whatever. He sympathizes with our weakness. I'm very grateful for that because it makes you feel less, doesn't it? You know, you're like, I know I should be really talking loud right now, but I just don't want to say anything. It's Thanksgiving. I know what's coming. You know, Christmas is coming. That's not how you're supposed to talk about Christmas, is it? With the way our country is right now, the way it's kind of like, I mean, it's divided in so many different, it isn't just Jesus and not Jesus anymore. It's like a lot of different things, red and blue, face masks, no face masks, jabs, no jabs. I mean, there's a lot of things going on now and you show up at Christmas and it's like, oh, this is going to be a beat down, you know, in some cases. Well, he's present with you. He has sympathy for you in a caring way, not in a, oh, gosh, I'm sorry that's happening to you, but he's there. And you're cooperating with him. I need you to open your mouth. This is not a time, and this is not a time for any of us to be silent right now. It is not a time for that. I need you to talk, and I want you to know what? I'm going to be with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now, I would have been content, well, I should say, I'm sure there's a totality here that Jesus is trying to bring to Paul. I'm going to be with you, but not just in spirit. I've got a lot of, you have a lot of like-minded people with you here in Corinth. There's a lot of people that are going to trust in God. You're going to have a lot of support. There's going to be a, you know, it's a big deal. It is easier. You would think, when, it, when I first started teaching, I would get nervous that there's a lot of people here. Oh, boy, you know. It almost would shut me down because I'm like, well, they're going to, oh, that's a, that's a relative there. They've never come before. That's a rel- oh, they're going to expect me to do this. Okay. Oh, no. You know, you look around the crowd like, oh, boy, the place is packed. You get nervous because there's so many people. It's the exact opposite now. And I don't know what it is, but when there's more people, there's more boldness, there's more freedom. And, there's, and maybe it's because, you know, there's more in the crowd that are for you than against you, you know? Whereas in a smaller crowd, you can see them all falling asleep, or you can, you can see them all nudging each other, or, you know, talking about you, shaking their head. <laughs> you know? So Paul said, or God said, Jesus says to Paul, there's a lot of them there. That's encouraging. I'm not alone. And so he gives him that. No one's going to hurt you. So Paul hears that vision, and verse 11 is almost comical. So he stayed there a year and six months. Paul, you ready to go over to see if we can get into Asia again? No, I'm all right. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, I'm feeling kind of good here for the first time in a long time. I'm kidding. That's not why he stayed. I'm sure he stayed to give him a well, I mean, just a solid grounding in God's word. Can you imagine? I mean, at one of the places he spent three Sabbaths there is all, and then he left and said, okay, you got a church. Three Sabbaths, you know, three weeks. Imagine what a church, how, 
how solid it should be after a year and six months of Paul teaching constantly. It should be solid. They're like the most spirit-filled church in the Bible that you can read about, but they're like the most carnal people at the exact same time when you read Corinthians. It's amazing what happens to them. Nevertheless, he stays with them. So, what does God bring to Paul here? Comfort and provision. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he says in that whole spiel, and you can read it on your own, the one thing that sticks out to me is that I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. When Paul comes to Corinth, as opposed to what he did in Athens, where he's trying to be eloquent and talk about the poets, and even this God over here, and this is, and he never gets to say the name Jesus. Never gets to the crucifixion, really. Just mentions the resurrection from the dead before he really drives it home, you know. And they just walk away. So he never gets to Jesus. So when he shows them in Corinth, the first thing he says, Jesus Christ and him crucified, gets it out, you know. That's, a, that's, a, that's immediately what I went to. There was no lollygagging around, no beating around the bush. I told you exactly what you needed to hear right away. I pretended to know, and he goes on and on through that whole 16 verses about, I didn't try to use eloquence or different, you know, man's words. I just, I told you what I knew. It worked. In his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, he says, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you, and that's what we're reading right now in the book of Acts, and in need, I was a burden to no one for what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied, and in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. I made tents, and when I laughed and didn't have enough for making tents, it was Macedonians that brought me money. They they took care of my provision so that I wasn't a burden to you guys there. God gives him so much in this place. He gives him friends, Priscilla and Aquila. He gives him a vision. I'm with you. He doesn't get beat down. He gets some time to heal. And he gets provision for ministry from other churches that he's already ministered to. And they bring it to him. This is quite a respite for him. A beautiful time. Verse 12. Then Galio or Galileo, or however we pronounce it, doesn't matter. He's, he's a good guy, though, in the sense that he's, he's fair. I like what he says. He was pro-council of Achaia. So the, the Romans have just put this guy in charge. He's the new pro-council. He's kind of overseer, governor, whatever, over this area. And because the Jews are subjected to the Roman government right now, they come with one accord and rose up against Paul and pro- brought him to this judgment seat of this new Roman pro-council guy, Okay. Brings him to the judgment seat. And here's what they said. This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And what he means by that is the law of the Romans. It bothers them. And he also means the Rome, you know, what we believe as Jews. It's contrary to what we believe. He's teaching them to worship otherwise. Now, Romans aren't, most Romans don't know the Lord and are bothered by the Jews and are bothered by the Christians. I mean, there just isn't a lot of, Uh, They're just a headache to these guys. And so here's what he says. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, which means he doesn't even have to defend himself here because he doesn't open his mouth. That's like the fourth thing God does for him. Galio said to the Jews, 
If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should hear or bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look into it yourself. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. <laughs> like with whips and get out of here, swords drawn and all that. Get out of here, leave. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Okay, so that's the new guy. <laughs> He's the interim pastor over there. So Crispus gets saved, leaves the synagogue, goes over to Justice's house. Okay, who wants to be the new pastor? And, and this Sosthenes guy says, well, I'll do it. I've been waiting for this. This is my chance. You know, I get to be the new Jewish pastor over here. Um, I get to be the new rabbi. <laughs> and they took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him before the judgment seat. <laughs> but Gallio took no notice of these things. So they just take the new pastor and they beat him down. I, I don't know why it's funny to me. It's not. The poor guy. But it works out for good. Sosthenes getting beat right now works out for good. And that's why I'm smiling. I'm not smiling because I like people to get beat down. I'm not sadistic. I'm smiling because Sosthenes, who thought it was going to be a great opportunity, because obviously he took the job, or he's a voted in or whatever, and accepted the position. He sees these people that he's supposed to be caring for turn on him so quickly that they beat him down in front of this. And it's like, I don't even, go ahead, beat him down. I don't care. What does that have to do with me? Beat your people. I don't care what you do. Sosthenes gets saved. Sosthenes gets saved. It's, it's mentioned in, uh, let's see, where I wrote it down here. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7, talks about that. So this Sosthenes, after he gets beat down, is like, you know what, I think Justice House is a little nicer than these people are. So he goes over next door also. He gets saved. So Paul still remained a good while. Verse 18, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Centuria. Now he is excited. That's what that means. Uh, cutting off the hair, it's like a Nazarite vow. He's going to do this another time, but this is different. This is voluntary. This isn't from someone telling him to do it. Um, Paul is a Jew. And some of the customs of the Jews, there's nothing wrong with them. And not all of them had to be tossed out just because you became a believer. And this is one of those things. It's a dedication of his life, you know, and so Paul here, the idea of a, of a Nazarite vow is I'm starting fresh. You shave off your head, and any hair that grows from that point out from the Nazarite vow um, for a time period, usually a Nazarite vow was I'm going to, for three months, I'm going to follow the Lord, and I'm going to go to the mission field for a year, or whatever it was. The hair would grow out, and when that time was up, they would cut it off again and take that as an offering to the Lord, representing the time spent dedicated to God, and they would burn it as a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, and so on. That's part of it part of this Nazarite vow. So Paul does this. And he does this, I think, at such a wonderful time. He had such a great year and a half at Corinth. Those four things that we mentioned, just such a blessing. He's just like, ah, oh, it's like a, he's not being reborn. Don't get me wrong. He's born again. But he has this moment of, I can, it's like a reprieve. I can do this. It's like a breath of fresh air. I'm, I'm shaving my head. I'm dedicating my, my life to God. I'm, I'm going to die doing this, you know. It's just a neat thing. And you may have personal things like that in your walk with the Lord, where you just do certain things. Nobody needs to know about it. Don't make a big public spectacle out of it, you know. But between you and the Lord, it's just, it's, you can do things like that. I've done things like that throughout my walk with the Lord, not shave my head. That's just, that's the barber shop every time I go. But 
different things, rededicating, um, recommitting, not walking away, deciding I'm going to stand or I'm going to do this or or I'm going to open my mouth or there's things you do. And this is one of those moments that the Bible decides to tell us that Paul goes through this. And so he does this and he gets to go to Centuria. And then look at this, verse 19, and he came to Ephesus. Why is that a big deal? Well, that's where he wanted to go to begin with. Do you remember how he tried to, in the, uh, earlier, I think it was Acts 16, when he was trying to get over to that place, and the, the Holy Spirit kept saying, no, not yet, no, not yet. So he, he got this vision for Macedonia, so he got to go to Macedonia and do that thing. And then he works his way around until so he gets to Corinth. And so he tries that door one more time, and it opens, and he gets to go. And you kind of wonder sometimes, well, what? Why couldn't you go when you wanted to go? Why did it have to be? The... God has sovereign timing in things. That was a closed door. That was a closed door. For me, sometimes I'm afraid to even try that door again because I don't want to be that guy who God's trying to say, stop going over there. I don't want you to go there. That's not your ministry. I don't want you to have anything to do with that. I don't want to be that guy that just stands by and says, I'm afraid to touch that door. And, and I also don't want to be the guy that keeps banging my head against the wall that God says, I, how many times are you going to do that before I have to, before you, you, you know, you black out. You're not going there. But Paul just, he's just that guy. He just kicks that door one more time. Oh, it's open, you know, and he goes on through. I just love that. If it's shut, it's shut. He's okay with that, but he doesn't know. So let's see if we can go to Ephesus. Come on in. Hey, now's the time. The people are ready. The church of Ephesus is going to begin. The Ephesians is going to start. Wonderful. And he left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. But I will return again to you, God willing, And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch, after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia, Phrygia, in order to strengthen all the disciples. He hits his route again. He goes through, ministers to all the churches he's already started, all the disciples that are following Jesus. He comes alongside and decides to strengthen them. Hey, how's your walk going? How are things doing? How are things going with you, you know? And he builds them up. That's his third missionary trip here. As he makes his circuit and connects with all these people and begins to minister to them. He's a good brother. He's a good man. Um, he's, you can, this is like the first time we see him fixated on Jerusalem, though. This can be an issue. Just so you know. I've got to get there. I've got to get to the feast. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to be there kind of thing. He just feels this. He's compelled to do it. Now, I don't know. There's a lot of arguments as to whether he should have gone or whether he shouldn't, where the Holy Spirit says, hey, you know, you're going to get bound. Bad things are going to happen to you if you go. Some say he shouldn't have gone. He was being disobedient to the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I don't think he was, but maybe he was. He needs to go to Jerusalem. He needs to do this. He feels like it's his time. Did he have to shave his head? No. Did he have to make a vow or told not to? You know? You don't just let your yes be yes, your no be no. You don't have to be making these vows. But he's doing these things because he just feels, you know, it's his walk. He can do that if he wants to. It's his choice. 
And so he's doing it. It's not sin. And so, you know, we'll just leave him alone in this. Anyway, he feels this, this, he's feeling compelled to go. Um, I've got a cross-reference that I didn't hit. We have time, and then we'll close here with the last few verses. i got to hit it. Sorry. It's Because it's one that sticks out to me. It's from Proverbs. And I, when the proconsul says, I don't want to have anything to do with this argument, you know, kind of thing, I don't mean to go back to where we were, but I'd just rather not be a part of this. It reminded me of that Proverbs 26, 17. It says, he who passes by and meddles in a quarrel that's not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. I always thought that's the funniest proverb. I mean, it's just so strange. So, but I get it. You know, you get it right away. It's like one of those proverbs, not cryptic at all. It's like, yeah, I can imagine. You take a pit bull by the ears and twist. You can plan on you're going to have a fight that you didn't need to do. You didn't have to have anything a part of it. The pro council is like, you know, I'm going to pass on that pit bull over there. You guys deal with it. That's just wisdom for a lot of us. You know, there's a time to open your mouth and stand up and do your thing. There's another time saying, you know, I'm just... I'm not going to be a part of that. And to know the difference and to be, have that wisdom, that leading of the Holy Spirit. So I, I definitely had to hit that tonight. Okay, back to 24. We'll close. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, this guy. I'd like to know more about him. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. That's where Paul was, right? This man, and that's where he left Priscilla and Aquila. Paul came through, went to Ephesus, finally got there, passed on, has gone on, business all the disciples, but he left Priscilla and Aquila behind. And these guys, these, this couple is doctrinally sound, super solid people, leaves them behind. There's a reason for that. There's a, another divine appointment that's about to take place with this Apollos. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What did they say? There's a lot of opinions on this. I think it's important that he brings up the fact in this book that he only knew the baptism of John. What other baptism is there? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I don't want to harp on that. Maybe he needed to be filled with the Spirit. Maybe he only knew. Or maybe he only knew of Jesus and never knew Jesus or didn't know all the things that he did. And Priscilla and Aquila took the time to say, hey, this Messiah that you keep sharing and you really have received, you know, Follow Jesus like I follow Jesus, but you never like heard the stories about him, that maybe they filled him in on all the things that Christ ever did. And he was like, thank you. You know, that's so awesome. Anyway, they did whatever they did in such a way that it was received by Paulus. They didn't come alongside and say, Sonny, you got this wrong. You know, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. You've been in Missouri too long. And, you know, let me tell you a more excellent way. You know, no, no, no. They did it in such a way that he was like, thank you. I needed that. That was such a blessing because it emboldened him. It made him stronger. It made him more, more of a powerful preacher. It was wonderful. So there's this divine, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, you don't hear a lot about them, but man, what a ministry they had. It's like we talk about Billy Graham's Sunday school teacher that led him to the Lord. You know, somebody had to lead him in a prayer. Somebody led him to Jesus. Someone shared with him the gospel. Could have been his 
parents, obviously. Who knows? But somewhere along the line, he gets this person, and we don't hear about them. We only hear about what Billy's done. But the real people that have come into their lives are these Priscilla and Aquilas, and I watch for those kind of people in my life. And you should too. These Priscilla and Aquilas that God sends, he sends these divine appointments that he brings. He's like, okay, thank you for that. Anyway, they're willing to be used, and he come alongside this Apollos and help him. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Bold, powerful, you know? And so that's after his meeting with Priscilla and Aquila. And that's where we close tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this break that you gave to Paul. And some of us need that. Some of us have had that. And we appreciate that. Help us to recognize it. Um, I was just thinking, um, you folks from Oregon, when you shared that with me on Sunday, when the Lord just told you, you know, you can rest. That's exactly what we're talking about, isn't it? It's exactly what happened. Lord, we thank you for those moments that you give us where you speak to our hearts and you tell us, you know, it's okay to rest. I'm with you. And uh, what a blessing that is when we hear from you and you share that with us and It brings us such peace and comfort. Lord, help us to be bold when we're supposed to be bold, to shake off the coat, to be eloquent, to be powerful, to refute, to do it publicly at times, but also to know when to rest and when to take the break that you give us and to not eagerly look for a fight or eagerly look for an argument or some kind of platform to where we can share the gospel. But if you give us a break and tell us to sit it out for a little bit, help us to take those times, Lord to take that time of refreshing that comes from being in your presence, but then also be ready in season and out of season to give a reason for the hope which lies within us. Lord, We bless these folks tonight. Help them to get home safely. Keep these words in our hearts. Help the birds not to pick them away and take them or the cares of life to choke it out or the, the trials and the struggles that come our way that might scorch us, God. Help us to have deep roots and this, this word might bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.